Okay, well, hello everyone. Thanks again for joining us here at the History 296 podcast. I uh, hope this finds you well wherever you're at, whatever you're doing. Um, this week in the course, we are going to be taking a um, big turn in our discussion and the focus. Um, and obviously, this is a turn that's shaped by um, the chronology and the sequences of uh, modern Korean history, and, and most importantly, um, beginning with the collapse, pretty much, and disintegration rapid disintegration of the colonial system in Korea. And I think for today, uh, I'll try to keep this short as always. Um, I think what I really want to emphasize and to help kind of shape the discussion we're going to have next week and, and in the weeks to come was how rapid the decline of the colonial um, government general Korea was. Um, and in some ways, how unexpected it was among Koreans and within Korean society at the time. We can often be somewhat misguided by the fact that we know how the story ends in a sense. We know that ultimately Japan would be defeated by the United States in the Pacific War. Um, the Soviet Union would enter the war very late. Well, that will be a part of our story coming, but um, largely um, was defeated by the United States and its allies. And that would lead to the rapid disintegration and unfolding of the Japanese empire throughout Asia and notably um, including Korea. And I think that in some ways helps to set the stage for understanding the sequence of events that we're going to be focusing on class this week, which is the critical three-year period, especially between the fall of the colonial system in Korea and the emergence of two separate states claiming the right to govern all of Korea, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea in the North and the Republic of Korea in the South. And I think there's a few things that I think, we, again, it's important to keep in mind because we have this tendency, because we know what happened, to in some ways overfit kind of our understanding of what ends up happening with, with the situation prior to those events unfolding. And, and to, to be a little bit more clear, we know Korea ends up divided. We know the Japanese colonial system collapses. Um, and that, in some ways, has us, makes us think, look at those things as inevitable or understood to be inevitable, when certainly at the time, both cases would be considered highly unlikely, if not almost impossible, by many of the people, right? If we were in Korea... You know, even in the spring of 1945, many people had, um, whether they liked it or not, and most people generally were not favorable to the colonial system, had resolved themselves to try to kind of work within it or figure out some way to etch out a life within it because it had at that point been around for 35 years. And there was a sense amongst many people that there had to be some way to find a, a, a mechanism to work or exist within this existing structure. We talked about Pak Chung-hee, who um, was not necessarily favorable to Japanese colonial rule, but saw you know, an, an opportunity to try to work within the parameters of that system, right? And, and so there was, um, I, it's not that Koreans were resigned to be colonized forever, but there was, in, in a sense, that the colonial period was going to stretch on indefinitely. And so... To have months later the colonial authority almost overnight you know, disintegrate 
was a extreme, if not welcomed, shock to the Korean society, both elites and and people、um, throughout the country. And I think the the fact that that was a you know that the change was so rapid and in some ways so dramatic and often unexpected helped shape important features of postcolonial Korean society that we're going to talk about. And similarly, as we get into this period following、um, liberation in August of 1945, Koreans and Korean, you know, various factions and elites and and common people within Korean society had very different ideas and visions for what a post-colonial Korea would look like. Right, that just as liberation came very rapidly and surprisingly, that unleashed a set of social forces centered around shaping the nature of post-colonial Korea, and. There was very different views、um, tied to positions and ideas and notions that people had during the colonial period. But one thing was certainly not considered by any of these factions and any of these groups was the notion that Korea can or should be or would be divided, right? And that's always important to keep in mind that when we're in 1945, the notion of dividing the Korean Peninsula was not in anyone's mind as a possibility, right? And so I think those two kinds of Initial conditions are really important to keep in mind as we、um, begin our discussion throughout this week of the immediate post-liberation period. Now, of course, as we mentioned、uh, just a few moments ago, we do know that Korea did end up, and it still is divided, right? So, in some ways, again, we have this tendency to overfit and to, to see what we know to be, in fact, you know, what occurred as kind of determined or or somehow preordained to happen from the beginning. When and what I hope. Digging into this period to show that actually it's the opposite. That even into 1945, 1946, and and so on, 1947, most people within Korean society would wholly resist any notion that the ultimate outcome of the post-liberation period would be a divided Korea,、um, North and South. And I think that's important to keep in mind to understand、um, the series of events. Now, this is an an important and critical vector, right? That comes into This period, right, is that、um, Korea finds itself again central to another global struggle, and that was the struggle of, you know, known as the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, that even began kind of in some indirect and, and subtle ways, but important ways, while the United States and the Soviet Union were ostensibly allies. Fighting the Japanese Empire in in East Asia, right, and so that is yet another great power competition that the Korean Peninsula would see itself drawn into, and that's going to make us have to understand that Korea's views and Koreans' views were not the only opinions that mattered.、Um, and once again, Koreans would find that foreign positions and foreign views of of what Korea should be or what Korea needs to be for their purposes,、um, namely the Soviet Union and the United States. Uh, would have profound effects on the ultimate outcome of the post-liberation period, and most specifically, the division of Korea into North and South. And I think what we're going to see is that the United States and the Soviet Union weren't like solely responsible and didn't make everything occur that took place in post-liberation Korea, but nonetheless had important influence on. Driving and and in some ways exacerbating tensions and divisions that existed as a result of divides that emerged within post-colonial Korea tied to different attitudes and ideas about what a post-liberation Korea should look like and what sort of politics and society it should be.
And here, just to kind of leave it on this note, is we can see once again this mantra that global history is Korean history. And to the extent that the Cold War has and, and continues to have a profound effect on the nature of global politics, economics, and society, um, historically and in ways that the legacies of the Cold War continue into the present, North and South Korea being clear examples of that, um, we can see again that global history is Korean history and Korean history is global history. Okay, well, I look forward to seeing everybody in class next week. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>